Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 316, FDR, The Man with No Fear. Because we have reached the point where the U.S. is officially in the war, I thought it would be best to give an overview of the man who would be leading the United States during the war, FDR. As we know, General George Marshall, with others, led the actual war effort, but the American people, not to mention the millions outside the U.S., also looked to Franklin Roosevelt as a savior that would one day, hopefully, restore freedom. And to do this, I wanted to bring on board Richard Lim, the host of This American President, which delves into the lives and legacies of the U.S. presidents who, along with Michael Neal, the producer, has covered several presidents already, including FDR. Richard, thanks very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Ray. Yeah, so I was checking out your podcast, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, I stole from you, I'm going to be honest with it, I stole from you when it comes to FDR, so I appreciate that. But So tell us more about your podcast, uh, how it came about, but one of the questions I really like to ask people who go down this road of podcasting is, um, what have you learned either about a man in the Oval Office or maybe the um, office itself? Sure. Well, basically, when I was a kid, my mom would take me to the library and I would, you know, rent out all sorts of books and I Mm -hmm. was basically just having fun being a nerd. (laughs) And one of those uh, visits, I started reading about presidents. I started uh, reading those kids' biographies about presidents, and I found them as exciting or even more exciting than most of the books I was reading at school. Mm -hmm. And so ever since then, I was hooked. And over the years, I I basically just uh, amassed uh, a substantial library of presidential books and read as much as I could, just devoured them. And... uh, that that space that was my passion, and eventually uh, I had a job where I wasn't really doing anything engaged with my passion, and I I kind of thought to myself, well, what's the point of learning all of this if you can't really share it? Right. And uh, Michael Neal, who you mentioned, is my producer. Uh, we've been friends for years, and basically he and I just started talking about starting a podcast, and at that point it just became a matter of well if we want to do it we should do it you know let's let's get a mic and right. start recording and so that's what we did and it's been 4 years and it's been uh, quite a journey we've we've uh, done i think uh, uh pretty well you know considering two guys that just really uh were are you know just kind of nerds that just want to <laughs> do something like this right. so oh i can relate yeah, you, you're like, what's, what's the worst that could possibly happen? Let me jump in and do it. And you kind of figure things out along the way. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Cool. No, I've listened to a lot of your shows over the last week, and there's a lot of good interviews in there. The people you brought on, uh, I really enjoyed that a lot. So I'm glad you could be with us today. So, um, So let's jump into this. So the first thing um, when you talk about FDR, let's talk about his ideology, uh, the system of ideas that formed the basis of his political theories. So we all know the war is coming with hindsight, but let's go back before the war. Uh, what kind of uh, politician do you think he's going to be based on your research? Right. Well, so you mentioned ideology. Mm. And the first thing about FDR is that he came of age during the progressive era. Mm. His cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, was probably the most popular American at that time, and he was the first progressive president. And the idea behind that was that America had shifted from what it was during its founding to a new modern industrial state. 
It had essentially evolved. And, and the, the premise behind progressivism was that since the country and the world and the, the country's economy had evolved, policy had to evolve with it. And in many ways, this was really a, a, a huge departure from the founding because the founding posited that there were universal values, the values of equality, the idea that uh, your rights are ordained or they're endowed by your creator. Mm -hmm. And progressivism essentially said, well, those are nice ideas, but we've moved beyond that. And so they believe that a, a new modern nation state, an industrial state, needed a government and institutions that could address the problems that those created. Uh -huh. And so essentially, that's, that's what FDR believed. And I think at the same time, when it came to foreign policy, he believed that America, which had been isolationist, now had new global responsibilities because it was a modern world power. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, because you're right. I mean, um, the, the country is more sophisticated. It's more um, more populous. It's more industrialized. But at the same time, like you said, that does bring about problems in the people themselves. Um, with all due respect, probably can't solve those problems. You need a larger, more powerful entity, and who else except for the government? But you're right, it is a different worldview to go. You know, maybe the government can step in and actually do something, not so much laissez-faire, you know, buyer beware or whatever, actually try to help the people. Because uh, I went looking through FDR's uh, record before he became president, and he was, at the time, he was a governor of New York when the Great Depression comes along, and he was the only state leader to organize extensive of relief efforts. He said, modern society acting through its government owes the definite obligation to prevent the starvation or the dire want of any of its fellow men and women who try to maintain themselves but cannot. So I think it's fair to say that we take stuff like this for granted today. Oh, the, the government should be helping us. But it was people like um, Teddy, it was people like Roosevelt, uh, Franklin, who literally stepped in and said, no, we should actively be doing something and not just let the people suffer. The government can do something. And so it should do something. Again, we take that for granted. But this is kind of where it gets its start. Right. And I think that President Roosevelt, he was basically... Uh, someone that was in that big transition where mm. in the founding of the country, people saw the government as uh, empowering government as reducing the power of the people. But in Roosevelt's mind, he felt that the bigger the government could get, the more it could ensure the rights of the American people. So the, the kind of the formula is switched on what the effect of government is. And obviously that provokes a lot of opposition from people that don't have that same progressive worldview. Mm -hmm. And so that, that really, that shift happened under Roosevelt. And he, in many ways, many, many people call him, along with his, his cousin Theodore Roosevelt, the first modern presidents, because they were the ones that brought that modern view and institutionalized it. Right. But it's also a double-edged sword, isn't it? If you have a very powerful government that has reached out and can affect the lives of everyone in the country, and you suddenly have a really bad leader, uh, obviously very either bad things can happen or a bad situation can be allowed to, uh, to get worse. But um, fortunately for this country, when we do face something like World War II and, and the Great Depression, uh, FDR is there. And you're right, he absolutely had that mindset. No, 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 government can be a good thing. We just have to have the courage to try new things and maybe hopefully change people's perceptions. Just because the government is bigger doesn't mean you have less freedom. Maybe we're just here to help. And I think you're, you're right. He was one of the first and he, and he steered that ship uh, probably better than almost anyone else could. Well, and 
with with Roosevelt, I mean, he made so many decisions just by virtue of the time, and it was mm. a time where people wanted the federal government to step in. Yeah. But he also encountered a lot of opposition. The Supreme Court uh, overturned a few pieces of legislation, and there was actually uh, one of his pieces of legislation, the National Recovery Act, right. empowered him to create a ton of regulations, and one regulation actually dictated... Uh, how people could purchase chickens. And so actually, uh, when people purchased chickens, there was this company in New York. It was run by, uh, it was a kosher chicken company. And apparently the the customers had to close their eyes and grab whatever chicken uh, without even looking at the kind of chicken because it would be unfair if they could choose which chicken was healthier than the other. Wow. And the Supreme Court said, you know, that's a little too much power. Right. Uh, people should have the right to choose. And so uh, they struck it down. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was a lot of, there's a fair debate about the measures that he took and how effective they were. But nonetheless, it, it was a, a massive change. I mean, it, his his New Deal policies and yeah. what they did uh, make him one of the most important presidents in American history for sure. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Yeah. And and like you were saying, there was a lot of people opposed to him. I can imagine that if, you know, let's say like he only did one or two terms and he gets out of office and he's hanging around the uh, other rich people in New York, he might not have been that popular because basically, as far as I can tell, he's using the power of the government to say to his rich friends, look, you can't go around fleecing everybody. We're going to we're going to you know, we're not going to get too crazy on you, but we're going to draw some limits. So I imagine in some circles, you're right. Probably wasn't the most popular guy. But, of course, the average American loved the fact that he was trying something. Yes, absolutely. It's very interesting. I, I do think that the the whole uh, debate about all of this, about the size of government, it, it is a bit more nuanced than people believe. In fact, when, when Roosevelt came into office, uh, a va- the vast majority of Americans didn't actually, according to polls, didn't mm-hmm. actually believe that the federal government should directly intervene mm. uh, in, and provide direct relief. A lot of them did see the states and charities as that uh, having the proper role there right. in, in doing that. Um, FDR actually did run on a budget, uh, on a, a platform to cut the federal budget because there was a sense that Hoover had spent 
too much. So I think that F, even FDR had to work within constraints of the time. And they liked seeing action. And I think a big part of that was also just hearing what FDR had to say because he spoke in ways that was inspirational. Yeah. I, I think we're going to find uh, throughout the, um, the the rest of this episode, FDR, just like the rest of us, you know, you, you play the hand you're dealt, you do the best you can with what you've got, but that doesn't mean he's not going to try to change the narrative with his voice, with his words, with his smile with his personality with his charm and he was able to do that and so he's like you know and i don't have the exact phrase but he says to the american people we're going to try something if it doesn't work we're going to admit it we're going to try something else we're going to keep moving on i mean you just had to think that the american people suffering as much as they were were like okay maybe this is not what we wanted at first but that sounds pretty good to me let's give this guy a shot right right i mean the the famous phrase from his inaugural inaugural address was that he uh, he felt the American people wanted bold, persistent experimentation, mm, and like so and and at the time, uh, social experimentation kind of brought up the idea of what certain progressives were doing uh, in other countries that were extreme. You know, you think of like the rise of fascism and uh, eugenics, and so when people heard experimentation, Ooh. they they were afraid. But then other people saw it as well. Uh, you know, the progressive era means that government should experiment with new policies. So it, it definitely was a big change of rhetoric at that time. Right. And, and, and another, if I can just pick up on another thing you said, um, so not only are people really not sure what to expect, maybe at first they don't want the government to, to be involved, but for a lot of the, um, the average Americans on the street, and you really can't blame them for this, they really do have an internal view. Uh, you know, America is like the end-all, be-all, because that's the only thing that's really going to affect their lives as far as they're concerned. But that was another, and I guess another way that FDR was different from the average person. He actually was more of an international nationalist. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of a a nation uh, progressing to a new stage from the previous agricultural state that the founders had created to one of uh, an industrial modern power, that not only meant changes internally for government policy, but it also meant changes externally. And so, FDR's cousin Theodore Roosevelt was uh, the first president, I believe, that really embraced an unambiguous international role. You could argue if it was McKinley, his predecessor, but I think right. Teddy Roosevelt was really the first. And FDR had the chance to institute a lot of those beliefs. Now, when he came into office in 1933, the country was deeply isolationist, and it was like that for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But when, when World War II happened, a lot of people looked, started looking back and said, you know, if we had intervened sooner or uh, maybe uh, uh, de- deterred the, the fascist powers sooner, we probably wouldn't have lost as many lives. And, the, you know, the war would, it wouldn't have been as hard. And so FDR really used that as an opportunity to promote internationalism. Uh, he didn't do it until mm-hmm. the timing was right. But once he did it, By then, the vast majority of Americans, by the time he died, were ready to join the United Nations. So it was a very uh, critical uh, education process that he had implemented. Right. Yeah, he certainly does. He certainly does uh, deserve credit. Obviously, the war helped a lot, but he was able to change the mindset of so many people. And and I just can't help but think... um, 
because his family was rich, because they'd been rich for generations. You know, FDR travels a lot. He goes to Europe more times than I can possibly remember as a boy and a young man. I remember reading something, and this was probably before college, where he bikes through Germany and and Italy with with a friend or with a, a professor. I'm not really sure. But the point is, this guy has been to several countries numerous times. The second part of his honeymoon in Europe lasted for three months. And so he is going to have a, a much wider view than the average American who has probably never left their state. But he's like, no, no, I see it. It's all interconnected. And that's a reality that you cannot ignore. Absolutely. I, I think if I recall correctly, he had a, an ancestor who had actually been involved in the opium trade in Asia, yeah, his, in China. So, yeah, uh, twice. And, and twice. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and of course he had his family, um, his trips in, in Germany. So he's very familiar with Europe. And yeah. so that clearly, uh, was, was part of his worldview. Yeah. So obviously he's a different, um, how, how should we put this? A different type of person coming into the white house. So, um, that's a big part of it. So, um, let's get to his political realism. I love the fact that you, and you covered this in your podcast that FDR realizes, and, and I don't mean this as flippant as it sounds, especially with all the stuff that we have going on today where politics are very divisive and everybody's ready to fist fight over it. But to a degree, politics is a game of sorts and FDR saw it that way. And he, he didn't mind playing the game because that's how you actually achieve things by you give a little, they give a little, you compromise and we call it progress. Yes. You know, I like to say, and this might be t- simplistic, but mm-hmm. uh, I like to say that every president, you can kind of sum them up in one word in the sense of this was kind of the thing that made them tick the most. Right. And certain presidents, I mean, it, it, every president is different, right? So yeah. I think with uh, Washington, you could say that uh, duty and obligation, that's what drove him, yeah. right? Uh, with Teddy Roosevelt, greatness is what drove him. With Franklin Roosevelt, I literally think that the word that drove him, the thing that drove him was just politics. I mean, yes. he he loved politics. He loved being in the game. He loved winning in the game. He just loved everything about it. And so I think that uh, here's a guy whose cousin was president, mm-hmm. and then he, he went on as a young man to work for Woodrow Wilson, yeah. who was uh, a progressive as well. But he saw the mistakes that Wilson made, and Woodrow Wilson famously did not compromise with his opponents during the end of World War One, oh. and FDR realized that, and and because of that, uh, his ideas essentially went up in flames, and yeah. America turned conservative in the twenties. And FDR learned from that, and I I believe he looked at that and he said, well, you know, people might might uh, die on their sword on a particular issue, but it doesn't actually accomplish what you want. And exactly. Roosevelt was somebody that embraced every element of politics, even the, the, in his view, the need to be devious, yeah. uh, the need to make compromises. And so I, I think that there are people that, there are people that were progressives that were very idealistic and didn't necessarily like that element of politics, but he totally embraced it. And right. it, it's not hard to see why he ended up 
winning the presidency four times is because he mastered the game of politics. Right. I I, I guess maybe we could, I'll just speak for myself, I could be less uh, cynical instead of calling it the game. Maybe we could call it the process. But I th- but we know what we're talking about. He, he knows how to, you know, one hand washes the other. You know, you do something for them, they do something for you. That That's how, that's how uh, the good old boy network worked. And back then it was 99% boys. So, so he knew what he was doing. I, I think it's important to remember if you're, if you're someone who's listening to this right now and you haven't read a ton of books about World War II or you haven't read a lot about FDR or whatever, maybe you're a 15 year old kid, whatever. Um, when we say something like FDR was a brilliant politician, that's not necessarily a compliment. He's good at the game. He sees it as a game. He understands the give and take of the game. And so he's willing to do whatever it takes to move ahead three spaces, even though at first he might have to move back one. So I think he was a realist. I think he was pragmatic, very practical, which, again, to someone who was full of ideals, that might sound blasphemy or something like that. But but it's better to have fewer ideas and actually get something done than have a whole bunch of ideas and not get anything done. And then you walk, you, you know, four years later, you're out of the office. You didn't achieve anything, but you made a lot of great speeches. That's not exactly going to help people. Right. I think that's what uh, FDR would have said himself. He probably mm. did say it. And I, I think that uh, one thing that's interesting is that I, I think for people who believe that they benefited from his programs that obviously they would argue that, well, this is what you need. I will say that a number of his aides, his cabinet members (laughs) uh, were quite frustrated by him. And uh, on any given issue, he would tell his aides different things and all of them would think that he supported their side, but then oftentimes they'd be angry or they'd be disappointed later on. And, and that didn't just go for uh, government policy. Some of it just went with, um, uh, you know, the most mundane aspects of leadership. Uh, in fact, Henry Stimson, who had worked for, uh, he, he had been a cabinet member for Taft and for Hoover, mm-hmm. and then for Roosevelt, actually said that FDR was the poorest administrator he'd ever worked with. <laughs> and uh, and that's saying something. I yeah. mean, he's a guy who, who had worked with presidents. Uh, but the ir- ironic thing is that he was uh, much more popular and much more politically effective than Taft and Hoover. Yes. And yet, so, you know, you have a guy who's not necessarily the easiest guy to work for, not straightforward, but uh, in terms of political success, I mean, he, was, he, he had that Midas touch. Yeah. I, I think it's important to remember that... Um, it's it's unfortunate that, uh, just like you said, FDR would tell different people different things. He played things close to the vest. He didn't tell anybody his master secrets. Unfortunately, he didn't keep a diary about, well, today I told five people five different things, but I'm really going to do this. So we would kind of see the man he was, the process. He he, he kept it all in his brain, which, again, is, a, is an accomplishment. He's a very uh, disciplined in that way kind of politician. But you, you're right. When it comes to things like philosophy, that just wasn't a big deal with him. When he's in college, he's taking practice courses. I mean, everything else was kind of uh, boring to him. And he's the kind of person, look, it either needs to be fixed or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, get out of the way and leave it alone. Conversations like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin really didn't interest him. It was all about people, real world experiences. And and that after that, he got bored very quickly. And if I can add on one more thing, um, because I enjoyed this part of your uh, FDR talk when you were talking about the Wilsonian politics. 
So when you get to the part when you were talking about the League of Nations, FDR also wants to set something up uh, in the future of the United Nations because the way Wilson went at the League of Nations uh, did a horrible job. And of course, it doesn't get passed in the United States. So FDR has got this idea. He's got this framework. However, whatever he creates in the future, if they can ever get through World War II, it's got to have a lot more teeth than what the League of Nations. The League of Nations could absolutely punish nobody. It was pathetic. But when he builds this uh, future United Nations, he's got to deal with Stalin that doesn't trust the West, and why should he? He's got to deal with Britain, which is watching its entire empire collapse. Uh, and he's he kind of wants it. He, he wants Britain strong, but not too strong because he didn't believe in colonialism. So if there's going to be a person who could put all that together working with these people, it better be someone who's experienced, who's savvy, and who is, quote unquote, a politician that can get things done no matter the situation. Right. I I think the comparison between Wilson and FDR is very telling because Wilson, I I think he definitely had utopian tendencies. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a guy who believed that he can construct something that could literally end all wars, right? right? Uh, FDR, I think, he spoke in many ways oftentimes in that same utopian sense. But what's interesting is that many people looked at what caused World War I and World War II, mm-hmm. and they looked at the system that Europe had, and that system was called the balance of power, yeah. essentially. And it's a realist idea, right? You You essentially need to balance one power with the other power to prevent anyone from getting too powerful. Right. And a lot of liberals believe that this this system was inherently unstable. It led to arms races. It led to the wars. And they wanted to get rid of that and change the system into what Wilson wanted, mm-hmm. which was, let's get everyone into a big league and talk out their differences, right? right. Uh, FDR, I think, spoke that language. But in reality, I think he actually, being a realist in many ways, he actually wanted to create a new balance of power. And having the United Nations, he I don't think he believed the United Nations was going to end future wars, but mm-hmm. what it would do is that it would lock America into permanent engagement with the world, uh, and America could serve as the balance to prevent World War III. Right. And in many ways, that's still what's happening today, right? America kind of serves as an insurance policy. If any country, you know, uh, and not just America, but, you know, the Western powers, if any country gets too aggressive... Mm-hmm. The, the strong countries can deter them. So I actually think FDR, he could speak kind of that Wilsonian language, but in reality, he often looked at uh, power politics as a way to get things done, and, and whether that was at home or, or abroad, and that was what the United Nations, I think, he saw uh, the role that it would play. Yeah, I think it was realist. It's like, let me take Wilson's idea and put a little stick to it. You know, you got to have a because if you've got America, what America, Britain, France and Russia, the four the four main powers on one side, who's going to defy them? So, again, it was like, here's a good idea, but let me back it up with a little bit of overwhelming force. And hopefully in the future, you're right, there might still be a war, but these four should be able to handle whichever belligerent country or countries uh, step out of line. And, and I think he got that a bit from his cousin Theodore Roosevelt, mm. who famously said, speak softly and carry a big stick. <laughs> Sticks work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, 
And the other thing that I picked up from your podcast was that FDR, again, being a realist, again, someone who plays the game, who gets good at the game, at, at a point, it comes to a point where you recognize you're not always going to win. So sometimes you push on an issue. Sometimes you don't because maybe the timing is not right or not enough people are behind you. But again, knowing when to step back is also a skill I think a lot of politicians today uh, don't have. Or maybe it's courage. I don't know. But a lot it's a lot of things that politicians politicians today seem unable to do. Absolutely. And that's what he did with his internationalism. He basically knew internationalism was not popular from the end of World War One to the 1940s. Mm. And if you look up what he said about it, he he very rarely talked about it. Right. Smart guy. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, I, I couldn't help but comparing him to the British general, William Slim. William Slim had this idea of you take a group of guys, you train them hard and you hopefully get in. This is going to, but, but it's a general. So don't, don't take it literally, but you get into a couple of small scraps and you build up a, a momentum of victory. You build a culture of victory. In a lot of ways, FDR was doing that politically. He would have one win after another. And so he wanted to seem unbeatable. So when he did try to do something harder, like internationalism or or the draft or Lend-Lease, he, he would hopefully not be opposed too much and he can get it to go through. But the thing was to make it look like no one can stand up to you. Again, that's not true, but it's the precise that he wanted to create. Yeah, and let's not uh, forget that he made his share of mistakes. Yes. I think that uh, he didn't realize he won, his, he won his second term by one of the great landslides in American history. He won 46 out of 48 states. Wow. And yet uh, he pushed too hard after that. He, he basically kind of felt the equivalent of a political god at that time. Right. And he pushed through... The court packing scheme, which which didn't do well. And oh, so yeah. I, I think he also had his moments where he he had to learn also what what he could push and what he couldn't push. But he brought those experiences into the start of World War Two. Yeah, I, I think there, there's a joke that I saw on the West Wing years ago, but uh, FDR could have easily have written it or created the joke himself. It says, what do you call a, call a leader when no one's following him? A guy taking a walk. So again, he's like, I can't get too far out ahead of the crown. Let me just kind of sit back and, and see what happens. But again, the guy was a political genius. Uh, and I think the other thing, and this is kind of, this might seem weird in our day and age, but during the Great Depression and then during the European War, and then, of course, when America gets into the war, um, because of his stature, because of all the things that he had been trying to do, because of his age, because of his just the charm that just came through the radio, I think a lot of um, Americans had found their father figure uh, during a very dark time, and, and there's certainly not, nothing wrong with that. Um, I don't think, I think maybe we're too cynical for that nowadays, but to literally be the average American and say December 7th, 1941, completely overwhelmed over your head. You have no idea what's going on. But when you can turn on your radio, listen to FDR, hear that voice, hear the reassuring calm tones. Yeah, it's going to be ugly for a while, but you can't help but think things are going to be okay. We just got to play this out. Well, I'm reminded of whenever President Reagan would talk about FDR. And here are, are two men that I, I think historically they play such different roles. Mm -hmm. and, and Reagan, in many ways, 
was somebody who uh, reversed the course of the country uh, that Reagan had, uh, that FDR had put it on. Oh, yes. But when FDR talked about, or when Reagan talked about FDR, he always talked about him with a sense of nostalgia because for Reagan, FDR was that kind of figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think, you know, his his charisma is something that really did cross uh, political boundaries in many ways. Yeah. So... If you were a 15, 16-year-old kid or whatever what age they study presidents now, if you were to just pick a book and start reading about FDR, one of the things that you're going to be exposed to is someone's going to say something about his confidence, his charm. And I just got to ask, based on your research, why do you think this guy, besides obvious money, is that he just was such a confident person? Yeah, you know, I, I think he was somebody – it's interesting because – People would talk about him uh, sometimes pejoratively in the sense that they said he, he was not an intellectual. Right. So he did not have a very high IQ. But what he had was a very high EQ. Right. And I think that he was somebody that was given to a great deal of confidence. And part of that you could argue, and you know, I'm not trying to be a, a psychologist here, sure. but I think part of that you could argue is that, okay, here's a man who was born to wealth. Uh, he had a very, uh, he was kind of a rising star in American politics and then polio happened and he became, uh, handicapped and yet he, he, there was this sense of overcoming that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think he had this great sense that things would work out. And there's a quote, uh, probably the most revealing quote I've ever heard him say was that I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of a lot of things come into perspective when you spent years trying to wiggle your big toe. (laughs) And I have to imagine that a man who had it all suddenly being uh, basically uh, going through something like that, uh, like polio, uh, that had to have just changed his outlook in many ways. And uh, the fact that he was still able to become the governor of New York and then the president of the United States, despite that, I think it must have been a lot of confidence in him in the sense that, well, uh, I can overcome this challenge. What challenge can't I overcome? Yeah, that's a good point to be able to come over the, over that because I think polio was in, 19, I think he got it in 1921. And of course, he's going to spend his 20s, the 1920s, you know, trying to bounce back from that thinking, oh, I can I can do this. Well, obviously, he's, he's only going to recover so far. But I think he um, did a lot more than what a lot of people would have in their in their that same situation, they probably would have just given up. But I was rereading the early part of his life uh, in order to get ready to talk to you. And I could not help but think this guy grows up. First of all, he grows up rich, rich, rich. Uh, he basically is American royalty, politically speaking. Um, but he came from a loving family. He had total support. His mother, Sarah, doted on him. She took care of everything. And he saw FDR as a little kid, sees his parents, they're disciplined, they're self-disciplined, they're educated, they're loving, they take good care of him, and he gets the sense that things are going to work out. Yeah, you got to do the work, but generally good wins out, because that's all he's ever known his whole life. And so when polio comes along, even though I'm sure it shook him to his core, the confidence, the, 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 the positive outlook that he probably had stood him through that, and he was able to come back and achieve so much when most people would, would have just sat in the chair and read books for the rest of their lives and stayed out by the lake or whatever because they've got tons of money. They can do that. Not this guy. It takes him a while, but he bounces back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you you mentioned his mother, and his mother had such a huge impact on his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes an impact that 
uh, you know, made his marriage difficult because his mother oftentimes uh, felt the right to dictate uh, what his FDR's life would be, uh, regardless of what Eleanor thought. But yes, I I think he definitely grew up about as comfortable as any president we've ever had. And at the same time, uh, it's remarkable that he was able to make that connection with people that didn't grow up in the same circumstances. Yeah. Well, the one part of your, it was a two-part series on FDR, but the part that I really enjoyed was, here's FDR, full of confidence, full of charm. He's got that smile, just that totally almost just surfer mentality. Everything is going to be okay, man. Just stay calm. Until he runs up against Stalin. So you can have all the charm you want and you can, he's wooed thousands of people throughout his life. But when he gets to Stalin, not exactly going to be the same thing because Stalin is his own person. He's got his own willpower. He's been through his own experiences. And Stalin is also a real world person as well. So you're going to have two titans going at each other, even though they know, even though they need each other, FDR needs Stalin a little bit more, uh, one, to help with the Germans and two, to help with the, uh, the United Nations that he re- desperately wants to push through near the end of the war. Well, I, I think it is a telling, it, it's telling that FDR felt like he could woo someone like Joseph Stalin. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a man who, uh, at the least was known definitely for being a, a, a dictator. Yes. Um, although at the time, you know, they didn't have as much information as we have now, right. uh, but it was definitely known that he was a dictator and per- the purges had been known to a large extent. Uh, but I also think that uh, in, in many ways you could argue that FDR, uh, you know, I, I think he underestimated Stalin in some ways. Mm. In fact, his aide, Chip Bolin, said that FDR didn't realize that there were profound ideological differences between a Stalin and wh- whoever would be president of the United States. And I think FDR wanted to see Stalin as a realist uh, strongman right. uh, rather than an ideological figure. And I think from reading a lot about Stalin, you actually find out that he, in many ways, I, I mean, he could never trust anyone from the Western world, right. whether that was just the mentality of someone leading the Soviet Union or uh, a, a, because he was a communist and could never trust a capitalist. And I think that in that sense, uh, that's where FDR's charm met its limits. Yeah. Well, as you stressed in your podcast, I mean, Russia has been invaded twice now in living memory. Um, and so Stalin is pr- probably, of course, he never smiles he ne- or hardly ever smiles. He hardly ever says anything like that's good or that's great. Or yes, he normally just uses the word, the Russian word for fine, whatever that is. That was one of the biographies I read, but he's like, his mentality has got to be, look, you're fighting the Germans. We're fighting the Germans. Let's help each other. But as soon as it's over with, I've got to look after mine. You've got to look after yours. And and one of Stalin's biggest threats or, or, or future threats was making sure that no European power came through Poland again to attack Russia, like it's happened two times already. So again, a, a very strong-willed realist who would, who would play with FDR as long as it was necessary. But you're right, these two aren't going to be going on boating fishing trips together anytime soon. Well, I think it's also important to know that Stalin would still talk about World War II and the other, his allies, in the terms of how a Marxist would look at the world. So, yes, yes, uh, you know, the United States, the Soviet Union, and uh, the British Empire were ostensibly allies. But 
in reality, the way Stalin saw it was that every country outside of the Soviet Union was uh, capitalist and imperialist. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're uh, the, the, the greatest threat right now are the Japanese and German fascist states. Uh, but And we're, we're allying with uh, a set of capitalist states to defeat a, another set of capitalist <laughs> states. But in the end, when that's done, we will have to fight a war against even our allies, you know, the Soviet Union and, right. and Great Britain. And I don't think FDR realized that Stalin was in a state of permanent war against all capitalist nations, as opposed to kind of your your typical strongman balance of power figure. Right. Yeah, I think St- yeah. I think Stalin was permanently in survive mode and and you really can't blame him considering everything about Russian history, the stuff that is since, you know, since 1917. And so you really can't blame him for that. Uh, but to get back to FDR for a second, again, if you were to read a biography of him, at some points the, the writer is going to say, and of course, he was a traitor to his class because, like we said, he grew up mega wealthy, American royalty, never wanted for anything, didn't have to work, but uh, you, you can only sit around and fish so much. So he's going to go out, he's going to go to college and he's going to get a job. So he is a traitor to his class, but for us normal human beings, uh, in a good way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that was uh, a label that was given to him. I mean, there were people that uh, that basically hated FDR so much that they couldn't even say his name. Right. They would just say, oh, that man. And there's a, a political cartoon, I recall, of uh, this family, and it, it's kind of like your idyllic, uh, uh, you know, this. It, it looks like it's from like a 1950s comic book, but it's it's a little boy writing the word Roosevelt on a sidewalk, and then the sister telling on him and saying, "Mom, uh, uh, you know, Joey just wrote a bad word," you know. And so, I think, um, but you have to remember that this was a a very big departure from what Americans knew at the time. Mm. And when Americans for so long uh, did not really expect the federal government to intervene in the way it did, uh, for them, they saw FDR not just a traitor to his class, but a traitor to kind of the founding principles of the country. And so it was a big, it it, it definitely, he he did create uh, an opposition that, while not successful against him politically, was very strong and vociferous against his policies. I guess, and and tell me if you think this is fair to say, if it wasn't for something as disastrous as the the Great Depression, he might not have got away with it. But again, when things were that bad for so long, people are like, yeah, okay, this is not normally what we do as Americans, but screw it, something has got to give. And so maybe FDR was able to use that as an opening. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's that famous quote that people, I mean, it's it's a bit overused, but it's never let a crisis go to waste. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's funny because uh, it, it, that started being used a lot more and more. Uh, I think it was Rahm Emanuel who was quoted saying that, but that, that's been something that has, has been going on for a long time. And when, when the depression happened and the progressives had been pushing for their policies for a very long time, up in the several decades, mm-hmm. and then this was an opportunity to push those policies oh, through. So that's gotcha. exactly what he did. Yeah. I, and, and just staying with that for a second, that theme of being a traitor to his class, I remember reading a lot about Sarah. And yes, she was firm. She was very uh, regimented in her raising of him. She didn't allow any nannies. She literally did everything herself up to the point where... Uh, FDR was still in a dress like 
clothes until like age seven or eight or nine or something like that with long hair. But the point is, she took care of she took care of everything. And one thing that she did not do, as far as I could tell, was she didn't talk bad about poor people or she she didn't use words like like we use today with white trash or whatever. Yes, there was a hierarchy in her world, and yes, she was at the top of it. And no, no one could tell her what to do because she could list off all her famous relatives and show you all her property and, and her money or whatever. But I don't think she was a, a vile, mean-spirited person because I think FDR would have picked up on that. And so I think she was a decent human being who, who saw the advantages of moderation and discipline, and she firmly uh, instilled those into him. Yeah, I mean, she was a strong-willed woman who doted on her only son. Yeah. And so uh, now one thing that recalls uh, something I read was that in in FDR's 30s when he essentially was he was caught having an affair. Yes. Uh, and that uh, almost led to him and Eleanor divorcing. And Sarah, his mother, basically said, if you divorce uh, Eleanor, I'm going to write you out of the, uh, out of my will. <laughs> right. And so she was very strong willed person. Yeah. And I think that it, many presidents have had a figure like that, a mother like that, who kind of, uh, uh, you know, taught them uh, a lot of things as far as how to, <laughs> you know, how to deal with somebody that's difficult sometimes right. or just having having a strong spine. Yes. And he certainly got that from her. Uh, and sticking with, um, if I could, well, I guess switching gears for a moment to kind of going back to the intellect thing. So I'm reading his, I'm reading a couple of biographies. You got the self-assured, easygoing guy who likes to laugh, who likes to tell stories, and it doesn't matter if the stories aren't full of facts. A story is a story. And he's going along through life, and he travels through Europe. But when he does get to Harvard, and he takes over the Harvard paper, the Crimson, he takes that very seriously. But you're right, in, in his school, his grades were okay. It was nothing impressive. But he found something temporarily to focus all of that that passion on, and that was the newspaper. And once, once he leaves it, you and I know it's going to be politics. And I, I think maybe even at this time, he was starting to suspect politics is in his future. And it's one of the few things that it's like, here's a huge challenge I could take on. And let me kind of test myself against the world of politics. And so, but even then, I think he enjoyed the process. He enjoyed the game and he liked mixed it, mixing it up with the other politicians. Yeah, I think you cannot underestimate the example that his cousin Theodore mm. uh, was for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, I remember years ago I was reading through some of his letters when he was a young man, and he'll talk, oh, I visited cousin Theodore, and he regaled us with these incredible stories, which, I mean, you know, knowing Theodore Roosevelt, they, they probably were pretty <laughs> cool stories. And so I think that if your cousin is the most popular American, the most powerful country, person in the country... Yeah. Uh, it, it only has to kind of whet your appetite for getting into the political game. And here's a guy who shared his last name, and he referred to Theodore Roosevelt as the greatest man he ever knew. And he married Theodore Roosevelt's niece, yes, uh, who was also his cousin. And um, I, I have to imagine that th at the least there was a, a political benefit to that too, marrying closer to your cousin's, uh, the, the president, uh, his, his side of the right. family. Yeah. And uh, T uh, Theod Theodore gave her away at the wedding. So that was I remember reading that in the biography. So that doesn't hurt your future political prospects either. And again, we just have to remember for those for those of you who haven't really read about FDR. I mean, his his grandfather on his mother's side was kind of a 
pirate, you know, he, he built two separate fortunes uh, doing the opium trade, but he had relatives come over on the Mayflower. He had relatives sign the Constitution, sign the Declaration of Independence. And so, again, American royalty, blue bloods, all the way back to the founding of uh, of this country. So, again, this is the the kind of person he is. He, he went to Europe numerous times, and like I said earlier on his honeymoon, uh, one, during one, I think this was in Italy, he, Eleanor goes to sleep because they were walking around. She gets tired. She goes to, to bed. He goes downstairs, whips out a cigarette, I'm sure from a very, uh, probably from a gold case where he keeps cigarettes, and he would just sit there and share a cigarette with some of the hotel staff, and he would just talk to them. He would, There was a waiter and a cook, and hey, you know, I'm a one percenter, and you're someone who's going to be living, working until you die, but let's just have a couple moments and talk and tell me some stories. That's the kind of guy he was. So he was born into it all, but he could certainly hobnob with commoners, and it was it was legitimate. Yeah, it's interesting because I I mean I think I can't say I've I've known too many people who are in that upper strata sure. of wealth, but I get the sense that there are people who are in that world and they're very comfortably comfortable being in that world, yeah. and you know that's what they like. And then there are people in that world who are are a bit curious, and you know they grew up in the nice places and they went to the nice schools, but they like breaking out of that every now and then. Right. And I think he kind of, and it, it's whatever one thinks of him. It kind of reminds me a little bit of president George W. Bush, because Bush was somebody that grew up in a prominent family. Mm-hmm. His grandfather was a Senator, you know, prominent banking political family, but he, you get the sense he kind of likes breaking out of that and just kind of talking to regular people. Right. And I think, FDR was kind of that same way where you grew up in a cocoon, but you kind of want to see what's outside of the cocoon. Yeah. Oh, God, that reminds me. I remember one of the biographies I was reading. I'm not sure when this was. This was before college, before Harvard. But he goes somewhere, and I think it's in Georgia where he, he's driving through or he stops at someone's house. I can't remember who, but he, you know, he sees people in very miserable conditions. And there was a part of him that was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. I think maybe he assumed everybody had what he had. It was just less nice. But he sees people you know, with torn clothes, clearly unbathed. They're not in school or whatever. And so you've got this very compassionate person, but slowly by slowly, uh, I guess bit by bit, he does get to see the other side of life. And yeah, when he becomes president, he wants to do something about that. But as time marches on, war comes to Europe. It's already in Asia since 1937 when Japan invaded China again, and the U.S. is going to be dragged in. So clearly the United States, with its isolationism, with, with its head buried deep in the sand, they don't want to know anything. Clearly someone's going to have to lead this potentially mighty country in this very trying time. Oh, absolutely. And I think that there was a real sense that this was an unprecedented situation. Mm. I mean, you had Europe being uh, gobbled up in a way it hadn't been uh, going back to, you know, 100 plus years, you know, going back to the Napoleon era and the same with Asia. And so I think that uh, here's this precedent that was set that George Washington set when he left power after two terms. And it was so taboo to break that. But this situation was so dire that people were saying, wait, we kind of need someone we already know that has a strong personality and leadership skills. And that was the only time it probably could have ever been broken. Yeah. 
You're right. I mean, he's going to have to deal with uh, military generals, uh, uh, ambassadors, diplomats or whatever. And everybody's going to there's only so many resources going on at any one time and everybody's going to be screaming for something. So you've got to have someone who can say no to other powers. But at the same time, you've got to have someone who can charm people like Stalin, who's your allies, even though you don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. So this is definitely going to be a test for FDR. As much as he's been battling the Great Depression, there's a whole nother war, if you will, that he's got to face. But again, I think he's like, we can do this. And again, getting over the polio, learning how to deal with that, obtaining the White House. Again, I think he had a a lot of confidence going into that. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I I think that's why people chose him, because they felt confident in him uh, as uh, having known him uh, to to lead them through this crisis. Now, not to be too hard on Winston Churchill, who uh, in some ways, was qualified, but he, may, he, he he really jumped in with a lot of the military decisions. FDR is going to recognize in himself, look, I'm not a warrior, I'm not a leader, I'm not a soldier. And so he'll put in now and then, but he's basically going to leave it up to General George Marshall, uh, the, the Marines, the Air Force, that kind of stuff. But one thing that people have to remember is that FDR, besides um, traveling a lot in a lot of different countries in, uh, in Europe, he actually practically memorized Alfred Thayer Mahan's book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. This changed a lot of lives. It certainly changed the life of um, Theodore Roosevelt as well. And so he's he's read a lot about war. He's read a lot about the implications of war um, and what's needed to win, that kind of stuff. It's just that he hasn't held a gun himself. So he's got real-world experience, and he's got information from books that he's read. He is going to leave it up to the professionals, but occasionally he will stick his opinion in. And of course, when the, when the president sticks his opinion in, it's not so much an opinion as an order to do it. But I think he was wise in that. I'll come in every once in a while, but I need you professional soldiers. You run this thing. I'll just motivate the country and we'll give you as many assets as we possibly can. Right. And I, I think that he was somebody, he was comfortable with making big decisions. And uh-huh. he was somebody that rejected rejected advice when, uh, even if it was from the experts. And right. so uh, there were times where he overruled George Marshall, yeah. and even uh, Winston Churchill actually uh, was very much against uh, the the Normandy invasion. Mm-hmm. He wanted to keep the fight going on in the soft underbelly of Europe. Oh yes, uh, and and FDR rejected that. So he was. That's why they chose him because they wanted uh, the American people chose him because they wanted a guy with that kind of confidence. Mm-hmm. And even when it came to choosing uh, Dwight Eisenhower for the D Day position uh, to to head up the invasion a lot of people wanted marshall to do it yeah and fdr wanted marshall to do it in the sense that he felt marshall deserved it and he knew who would be chosen would if successful would be in the annals of history as a hero yeah. but he felt marshall he wanted him in dc in washington dc so he sent eisenhower and he felt eisenhower was up to the task and it ended up working out the way he wanted it to work out yeah i think that was an instance where fdr had to trust had to trust Marshall's people reading skills. Marshall picks um, Eisenhower, like, go off and do this, uh, because he'd first Marshall had first brought Eisenhower in after the Philippines was attacked uh, in December 41. And so I, I think, yeah, I think FDR is like, well, you're a good guy. I'd really like to put you in the history books, but I need you here. And so there was a, a little bit of um, everybody checking their egos for, for the bigger cause. But since you brought up Marshall, I just have to tell you this one story because it – 
cracks me up. Uh, George Marshall is actually from Lexington, uh, Virginia. I've been to uh, the area, and so it's it's kind of cool. You should check that out if you ever get a chance. Um, but but George Marshall was a stern, taciturn. Uh, don't get me wrong. He was a general. He was a politician. He knew how to play the game. But his face just looked like stone, and you didn't you didn't do a lot of small talk with a general marshal. And at one point, FDR, who called everybody, even the king and queen of England by their first names, and everybody called him Mr. President, when one of the first times they met, uh, he called uh, General Marshal George. He said, look, come here, George. I need you to look at this. And when he said George, the general just stood there stone-faced for a couple of seconds, and he just stared at FDR. FDR quickly backed down, called him general, and they were able to move on, which is a rare retreat for FDR. But again, he, he recognized the talented of this guy. And if he needs to be called general, I will call you general. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, the, the, there was another story I heard that uh, FDR, I think this was a couple years before World War II, and he was having a, a big meeting with the heads of uh, the military. Mm-hmm. And he basically kind of wanted the military to, to kind of applaud what he was saying. And then <laughs> One guy raised his hand and actually said, well, Mr. President, I actually think you're wrong, and this is why, and et cetera, et cetera. And everyone assumed that that guy's career was over. (laughs) And uh, that guy ended up being George Marshall. And FDR FDR seemed to be a bit miffed. But then uh, six months later or so, uh, Marshall was promoted as the chief of staff of the Army. So I think that was just kind of his reputation. You know, Marshall was not afraid to stand up and even to the president. So yeah, to, to to be able to say no to power is a very unique thing. But again, even FDR had to check his own ego. Look, because if you pick the right person for the right position, it just makes life so much easier. And I think we can all agree from results that George Marshall was definitely the right person for that position. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I I think that uh, he's one of the great unsung heroes in of the of the, the ward for sure. Yeah. So so yeah. we've covered a little bit about the New Deal, about him reinventing government. Um, but one of the things about FDR that will never be forgotten again is his quiet confidence that he radiated during the war. But certainly the time after Pearl Harbor, uh, he just made you feel like everything was going to be okay. Yes, it's dark now, and it's going to take a while. We're going to have to dig ourselves out. Uh, But in the end, things will be fine. Things are going to be okay. We just have to follow this man. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think if you if you listen to his speeches, Mm -hmm. uh, you can see I mean, he he was such a presence in people's homes. You know, he there was a a fireside chat where he asked the American people to get their maps out so he could walk them through the actual the battle. Yeah. And uh, maps apparently sold out because of that. So a lot of those map companies were were, uh, were happy and probably a bit unprepared. But yeah. I think he ha- he had that ability to be a household premise or, uh, presence rather. And I think that I mean people had his photo up in their homes. Wow. And uh, I mean I'm a history nerd. I have some presidents up in my home, but most people don't. And yeah. so that's how loved loved he was. People don't do that anymore, but they did it for him. Yeah. Well, uh, we uh, this is something you're going to cover, I'm sure in your podcast. You might have already done it, but I didn't see it specifically, but yeah, so by the time the 60s and the 70s come along, the idea of revering a president or or blindly trusting power is is going to be gone. But again, that's why your your podcast is so cool. I can't wait for you to to get to that part. So I want to touch on something that you said earlier. So we can never forget 
that FDR, out of all the things, he is a politician. He plays it close close to the chest. He doesn't keep a diary. He tells people what they want to hear to give himself some time and some options until he's ready to make a decision. And even then, he tries not to make a decision when he doesn't have to, because why should he? Sometimes things just work out for themselves. But again, it's going to make some people feel like they're being portrayed by him because they are talking to a politician at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, I think one example of that was with his vice president, Henry Wallace. Mm -hmm. And Henry Wallace was his second vice president. And he, uh, so he was vice president during the bulk of World War II. And uh, he was somebody who FDR chose because he was a loyal New Deal liberal. Right. And uh, the previous vice president had gotten into fights with FDR. Uh, but uh, essentially, Wallace ended up not being a very good fit for the vice presidency. Sure. He he had almost no political ability. He he got into fights with other cabinet members. Mm. He was also just a little bit out of mainstream. He had a a spiritual leader who was a bit out there, and right. there's some embarrassing letters between the two. So essentially, people just thought he was a weirdo. <laughs> and but but a lot of people on the left really liked him because he was a very sincere liberal. Yes. And he hoped to get a second term as vice president. And FDR, when he he met with FDR, FDR told him, you know, I I hope, you know, it's the same old team. It's going to be you and me, right? (laughs) But then meanwhile, the Democratic leaders were, uh, they saw him as a liability. So they convinced FDR uh, to get him off the ticket and replace him. And FDR agreed, but he didn't want to be the guy that, you know, Wallace would blame right. for uh, getting him off the ticket. So FDR basically signaled to Wallace, look, I want you as vice president. Uh, we'll see if the, the delegates want you to. And so the, the party bosses engineered his replacement, mm. put Truman in the vice presidency right. instead of Wallace. And as we know, you know, Truman would become president. So Wallace barely missed being president during such a, wow. a critical time in American history. And I talk about that this in the episode. Uh, but at the same time, to some, to some extent, he felt betrayed because, you know, FDR had kind of assured him that, yeah, you know, I, I hope it's the same old team. If FDR wanted him to be vice president yeah. again, he certainly could have made it happen. Exactly. But uh, he kind of allowed it to, to not happen. And so right. that's an example, I think, of someone feeling betrayed. Yeah, I I don't remember off the top of my head which episode that was, but I absolutely love that one because you go into the nuts and bolts of the convention. Uh, People should definitely check that one out. That that was a great episode. Uh, But you're right. I mean, FDR, he was not perfect. He was not a Superman. And he realizes that other people have their own agenda. He can only like kind of like with Stalin, he can only do so much, but he will do what he can. Uh, When it comes to Churchill, because you were you were also mentioning Churchill could easily have felt betrayed. At first, the two men need each other. And indeed, the United States and Great Britain needs each other as well. Uh, The United States, until they're into the war, they need to make sure Britain stays in the fight. They keep giving them as much arms and supplies as they can. Uh, But by late 1942, early 43, FDR can see that Stalin, like you were mentioning earlier, is fighting a lot of uh, Hitler's troops. He needs to keep him on his side. He needs to keep his trust. And so he's going to go after to try to charm uh, Stalin, but he's going to do a lot of this at Churchill's expense. Um, So again, 
he's just doing what he has to do. And it's not always about your friends or ego. Sometimes you just, you got to play the game of politics, but that's going to make a lot of people kind of mad at FDR. You know, did he give in to Stalin too much? Well, I I think with, with Churchill, Mm -hmm. they had had a very strong relationship. They had started beating during the war and, uh, it, it took a while for the first conference uh, between the big three to right. happen. And so here's Churchill. Here, here is, you know, he's the prime minister of, of the UK and, and FDR is the president of the United States, the special relationship. So he always felt, I think Churchill always felt that, well, there's this natural relationship between the two greatest uh, democratic powers in the world, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, they meet in Tehran and actually instead of a... Churchill Roosevelt uh, alignment uh, vis-a-vis Stalin, it ends up becoming more of a FDR Stalin alignment. Right. And FDR, at that point, Churchill kind of becomes a political casualty and he, he ingratiates himself with uh, Stalin by, by teasing Churchill and basically, uh, you know, kind of giving him a hard time. And it, it was a bit humiliating, I think, for Churchill. Right. And I think also the fact that geopolitically the UK was in such a precarious position and you have this great power that was essentially giving way to a, a world that would be ruled by the United States and the Soviet Union. So that was that was very difficult for him. Yeah, uh, we all have egos that um, things happen. and But Churchill, I imagine Churchill's uh, ego is a lot bigger than ours put together. So I think one thing people point out often is that FDR... They criticize FDR because of what happened in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. where Stalin essentially was able to take over uh, all of Eastern Europe and have inroads into Central Europe with East Germany and Berlin and, and so right. forth. And I, I think uh, his defenders, FDR's defenders, will say in response, well, the United States and Great Britain had very little leverage in Eastern Europe because the Soviets had the boots on the ground, sure. the tanks on the ground. Um, I, I think that... Uh, I mean, I, I think that there will always be fair debate about that. And the one criticism that has been leveled on FDR is that whatever leverage he did have, they say he didn't use it wisely because the United States did have some clout in the sense that the Soviet Union was in desperate need of financial aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needed that to rebuild after the war. And the, the United States was the only country that could provide that. So that could have been uh, conditioned uh, on certain behaviors right. for the Soviets. And uh, there will also be people who say that, that, that question the utility of the UN and, and say that, well, uh, FDR's belief in the UN gave away a lot of leverage by insisting on Soviet participation. It allowed FDR to demand a sphere of influence in, in return. Um, so I think all those things are, are definitely going to be debated. Uh, and as I said earlier, there's the kind of element of... Uh, whether FDR understood Stalin's nature as a, as a communist. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, there are people that uh, in Eastern Europe who have strong feelings about that. But I, I think at the same time, it's indicative of the very difficult decisions any president would have had to make at that time. And uh, it, it shows that every decision FDR had to make at that time was something that affected millions of people. Yeah. And we, we can't remember this guy is human. He is doing the best he can with what he got. And he can't really read what the other guy is going on. And as we know, Stalin pretty much knew everything that the uh, Churchill and FDR was going to propose because he had spies all over the place. So, again, uh, he was doing right. the best he could. I, I wanted to ask you this because you just reminded me something. This is something that 
um, well, I'll, I'll just be neutral. Um, but in your research, did you run across anything as far as FDR knowing about Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked or maybe he was in on it or it was an inside job? You know, the whole. Uh, yeah, the conspiracy yeah, theories. Yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to ask yeah. your opinion. Well, I, I can't say that I've I've read anything that definitively, uh, you know, expressed that. I think that you, you, it's often like when you look at 9-11 and on December 6th, uh, or rather September 10th, 2001, uh, anyone who's in a position of uh, studying what threats there are, they see a lot of different threats, yes. right? They see long-term threats, short-term threats. And I think in... in um, in Japan, uh, or with World War II, it was one of those things where it's, well, they could strike in many places, yeah. and it's such a big ocean, and it would be, uh, and, and just the idea that anyone would attack the United States, uh, it hadn't happened since, uh, I, I mean, some would say when the Maine was sunk uh, in, in right. uh, 19, 1898. So I think in many ways, I mean, it's one of those things you have to you have to look at what the time and the mindset was. And it's obviously, it's a lot easier to say now. Um, but you know, obviously the question then goes, uh, what did he do moving forward? And, uh, uh, you know, Japan, uh, the Japanese government at the time would realize it at, to quote Yamamoto, that they had woken us, uh, uh, awakened, uh, a sleeping giant. Yes. So, and given them terrible yeah. resolve. Right, yes. exactly. So yes. I'm glad you said that because it's just nice to have someone else. You know, you, you try to refute these things. Uh, and again, this guy was just human. There's no way he's going to be able to mastermind a secret attack on his own people. I think it's I think it's a bit much. And again, if there is any proof to the contrary, it hasn't come out yet. And that's that's what we're, we have to work with. Right, exactly. Uh, but Richard, I really do appreciate you being on the show. So I'd like to end with um, FDR on the day of Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. He's told about 1.40 p.m. Washington time. This is about 45 minutes after the first attack. And each time there's an update, the reports get worse. Now, we all know, Washington knew, everyone knew that there was eventually going to be war between the Americans and the Japanese just because there was a lot of tension going on and no one was yielding. But the question was, when and how was this war going to start? The U.S. military was hoping for a delay as long as possible so they can build up weapons, they can train their men, they can get a lot of men in uniform. So, and again, this for me is what encapsulates what is so admirable about FDR. He pulls his cabinet together at 3 p.m., very calm, very businesslike. He issues orders. Everybody goes about their businesses as he gives his orders to the military uh, people, to the ambassadors, to the politicians. Okay, let's start getting on a war footing, everyone. And they all leave. But everybody's impressed with how calm he is. Now, that's then. Right before 5 p.m., he calls in his private secretary, uh, Grace Tully, who had been with him since June of 1941. And he goes, look, I'm going to obviously be speaking to Congress tomorrow. I want to be able to dictate a message. So the speech that he writes, the day which will live in infamy, was less than 500 words. And all of it, except for the very last sentence, was created by FDR. Harry Hopkins comes up with the last sentence. Um, now, for anybody who studied FDR, you know he loved the Navy. He was assistant secretary of the Navy. Um, he, had, he had a boat since he was a kid. He's, he 
the Navy is his life. He loves it very much. If it wasn't for politics, it might have been the Navy. Who knows? But the idea of so many ships being sunk at Pearl Harbor and so many people, so many sailors being killed and wounded, it just devastates them. And the phrase that is going around the White House that day is, how in the hell did we get caught with our pants down? Everybody is just freaking out. And FDR is feeling that same way as well, but he really can't show it because he's the leader. Everybody is looking to him. And if he loses it, everybody is going to start losing it because now it's time for business. But just before midnight, FDR meets with Edward R. Murrow, a reporter who had just come back from London. He also met with William Donovan. William Donovan is in charge of the OSS, a precursor to the CIA. And it's only with these two men in the middle of the night that he lets down his poker face and he lets some of his anger and his pain and his sadness comes out. He slams his fist on the table and he's complaining about the American planes being destroyed on the ground. He goes, on the ground by God, on the ground. So again, the Americans were obviously sucker punched and he's very upset about that, not to mention the thousands of dead. But the next day, when the sun comes up, FDR, the one that we've been talking about for just over an hour, the politician, the man, the confident person, is now back. He is in control of himself. He has that anger, and that anger is going to get him through this war. But he knows that he has to put that aside and do what is best for the American people, just like he did through, uh, through the Great Depression. This is the guy that led us through the war. Well, that, yeah. That encapsulates a lot right there. So, Richard, again, thank you very much for being with us to talk about uh, FDR. Um, Let us know, before I let you go, where we can find your podcast at. Right. Uh, They can go to our website, thisamericanpresident.com. They can check us out. We we have a Facebook page. We're on all the the venues that people listen to podcasts. They can check us out on iTunes or or Spotify, or wherever. But yes, thisamericanpresident.com. Excellent. So Richard and Michael, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Keep up the good work, because like I said, I stole from you liberally, and I need you to keep working hard. Well, thank you. I I take that as uh, a compliment. (laughs) All right. You take care, guys. Thank you. You too. Thank you, Richard.